even though original sin has been dealt with, the effects of original sin remain in us. Tinder of sin. So that, so that, very easily we can fall back into sin. Even as we have been baptized and now in the life of the church are becoming righteous, there's always the danger in us of falling back into sin. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us as he does each week is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey Brandon, always good to be with you. Now, this episode, I think, takes on a little bit more of a serious tone. It has some deeper gravity because we're gonna be talking about church scandal and what happens when leaders of the church fail, when they fall to sin. Uh, just a week or two ago, we learned the news that Jean Vanier, one of the most popular, influential Catholic spiritual leaders in the world, uh, it was revealed that he sexually abused six women while uh, he was doing his ministry in France. Just a little bit of background on Jean Vanier. He was a Canadian philosopher and theologian, probably best known for founding the L'Arche Communities. Uh, these are an international federation of communities for developmentally disabled people where um, other people live alongside them, work alongside them. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful ministries, I think, in the world. We have a large community in Jacksonville, not too mm. far from where I am, and we visited there uh, with our, our good friend Chad Allen, who's a listener of this show. It's just an extraordinary ministry. Many people, I think, when, when John Vanier was alive, he just died last year, mm -hmm. described him as a living saint. And I think uh, many people would have, would have said, after the death of Mother Teresa, who alive today would you be most sure is going to be canonized? And for a lot of people, it was Jean Vanier. Uh, but again, I mentioned he died last year, and then after a thorough investigation, the head of the L'Arche community just revealed last week that he, in fact, secretly had been abusing multiple women sexually. Uh, Bishop, this was, I mean, just flabbergasting, heartbreaking, stunning to a lot of Catholics around the world. What were your first thoughts when you heard the news? You know, it's funny you mentioned the uh, Living Saint thing because I'm just back as we record this from the uh, LA Religious Ed Congress. And many years ago, I was speaking at that, maybe right after Mother Teresa died. And um, one of the publishers, we were out for dinner with a group of us, and he said, okay, now that Mother Teresa's gone, who's, who's the one, you know? Who's the one that we should look to? And people brought up various names, and I brought up Jean Vanier. I said, I think Jean Vanier is someone who's like a Mother Teresa figure. So, yes, that was very much the way he was viewed. Uh, my reaction, like that of many, many uh, people around the world, was uh, shock and dismay, uh, disappointment. You know, just as we're kind of beginning maybe to recover from the McCarrick revelations, uh, at least something analogous now with uh, Jean Vanier. So, yeah, all those things, disappointed, uh, uh, surprised, um, deflated, you know, by that experience, all those things. Now, you had actually met Jean Vanier before in person, is that right? I did. This is many years ago. I was helping out at a parish on the uh, uh, North Shore, the suburbs north of Chicago, and there was a wonderful lady there who had worked with Jean Vanier in France many years before, and had kept up with him, and she knew him. And she said, you know, he's coming through Chicago, he'll be at my house over the weekend, would you like to meet him? And I said, well, yeah, of course I would. 
So I came down from the seminary from Mundelein and we met, I remember, in the living room of her house and we had maybe an hour-long conversation. Um, you know, I, I had what you'd expect, a, a sense of being with someone who was very holy, very bright. He was a brilliant man, very well-educated. Wrote beautifully, I must say, about the Christian faith. His books are wonderful. In fact, I recommended his books to many people over the years. But then to be with the man who founded L'Arche, as you say, one of the best-known uh, outreaches to developmentally disabled people in the world, this beautiful model, really, of, of Christian ministry, um, all of that, you know. And he had, I would say, a very charismatic presence. You've seen photos of him. Um, almost, I'm always reminded of someone like Gandalf with the big eyebrows and the, the kind of elder you know, look about him. And so all of that, you know, I, I sensed when I met him. That analogy resonates with me because it feels like Gandalf fell into scandal. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I can't believe it. I think for many Catholics, it's just the latest blow. You mentioned it's kind of on the heels of the Theodore McCarrick situation, but going even further back, you have Father Maciel Maciel, you have other major Catholic figures falling into scandal. It seems like there's a pattern where we lift up these very charismatic, apparently holy men and women, but then boom, they fall to scandal and the Catholic community is crushed. Um, I guess maybe an initial question is, what, what, how should we view popular, charismatic Catholic leaders? How can we reverence them and, and glean from their fruit without going too far so that we're crushed whenever they inevitably fall? Yeah, you know, maybe, Brandon, it's a, it's a tension built into a, a Catholic sensibility. What I mean here is we have a keen sense of the saints. We take the saints very seriously. We love the saints, and the saints are models to us. And so, of course, we look around. As we suggested earlier, we look around for saints today who are, are living saints. So that instinct is deep in us, and, and we love the saints, and we want them. We want them to be models to us. At the same time, there's a keen sense within Catholicism of the reality of sin and, and the fact of the fall and the effects of the fall, etc. And those two things, in a way, are at odds with each other. Maybe they're, they're in tension with each other. And that's perhaps you know, the best way to approach these issues is, yeah, by a healthy instinct, we, we want and we look for and we lift up holy figures. Uh, think of, like in, in my lifetime, Mother Teresa and John Paul II, probably the two great examples. At the same time, we're aware of sin and the effects of sin. And so those two are always in tension with each other. Help us make sense of this. I know this is an issue for a lot of Catholics. They look at all the fruit born from the life and ministry of Jean Vanier, the large communities, his spiritual writings, and they think this is undoubtedly positive fruit. Like there's so much good coming out of this man who we now know was deeply dysfunctional, perhaps sociopathic, narcissistic. How could so much good flow out of such a, a deeply corrupt person? How do we make sense of that? Well, with the Catholic both and, I suppose. And that, right, I, I would try to avoid the extreme of just saying, well, you know, he's completely corrupt and everything he ever did was just a cover-up for his corruption. I, I think that's too strong. And I wonder, Brandon, let's, let's do a little abstracting from this particular case to look at the thing uh, a little more completely. I think it might help us a bit here. And, you know, for years when I was a seminary professor, I would teach uh, the course in the Reformation, looking at Luther and Calvin and, and company, and then looking at the Council of Trent. And I'm a great uh, advocate of the Council of Trent. And, and the Council of Trent says a lot of really good things 
about sin, about grace, about salvation. And let me just, just say a few simple things. And I also, I'd love to hear, Brandon, from you as a, as a former Protestant to see if it congrues with your own you know, formation in those years. But you know, go back to someone like Martin Luther and his famous formula, simul justus et peccator, right? Meaning at the same time, justified and a sinner. What Luther meant there was, we remain sinners. And his famous image of, of the dung heap, right? but is covered by the snow of God's grace, which is a kind of imputed righteousness. God declares somebody righteous, even though under that thin veneer, they remain a sinner. So you're at the same time sinner and declared righteous, right? There's the Lutheran position. Now, I can't go into all the details about John Calvin, but Calvin who held to a total depravity anthropology, meaning in regard to salvation, not regard to other things like learning how to build buildings and all that. We're not totally hopeless, but in regard to salvation, we are utterly incapable of, of saving ourselves. We remain totally depraved. Um, declared righteous, he accepts the Lutheran position, the imputed righteousness. I remember years ago, there was a conference on film and with you know Christian speakers involved. And afterwards, a lot of them said, you know, how awful the films today, and you know, they, they, they display so much sinfulness, and they, they're so corrupt, and there was a Calvinist uh, in the group, and he said, I, I don't know, I, I think that's perfectly valid, I totally get it. Of course they portray, they portray us as we are, you know, a total depravity anthropology. Well, and I'm oversimplifying here, these are complicated matters, but the, the fathers of Trent read the reformers carefully, they knew Luther and Calvin and their, and their disciples. They read them carefully. And in light of those criticisms and observations, they put together their anthropology. Now, what is it? Not total depravity, not imputed righteousness, but rather that God in Christ is affecting in us real righteousness. That is to say, really setting us right. One of the Catholic instincts from Trent to the present day is that it would be a violation of God's truthfulness if God were to declare righteous someone that really isn't righteous. That would be out of step with God's truthfulness. Therefore, what God is doing is not just declaring from the outside, He's making righteous. He's setting us right. Through the grace of Christ, mediated through the sacraments and the saints and the church and our participation in all of that, we are becoming righteous, right? Uh, properly aligned to Christ. Now, Another step, though, in this explanation. Even after baptism, which deals with original sin, what remains, the Council Fathers said? What remains are what they call the fomes peccati in Latin, which means the, the tinder of sin. Uh, concupiscence, we could call it, too. Even though original sin has been dealt with, the effects of original sin remain in us. Tinder of sin, so that, so that very easily we can fall back into sin. Even as we have been baptized and now in the life of the church are becoming righteous, there's always the danger in us of falling back into sin. Now, let me just take one more step here. When I used to teach this, I'd use this image because I think it's a very good analogy. Think of people today going through a 12-step process, right? Someone that's been caught in a terrible addiction. They've hit bottom, right? 
they've admitted their, their powerlessness over this. They've opened themselves to a higher power. You know what that is? That's the grace that has to break through. I can't solve this problem on my own. I can't will myself out of whatever the addiction is, right? I now turn my life over to a higher power, but now watch. I also make a commitment. All right, I'm gonna see a sponsor every week. I'm gonna to go to meetings every week. I'm gonna commit myself to a, a, a style of life. Why, why? Because I know even though I've admitted my powerlessness, even though I've turned my life over to a higher power, even though I'm now part of a process, I've got in me, I know this, the tendency toward the addiction. The, the fomes, right, the tinder of it remains in me, which is why, quite rightly, I think people going through the 12-step process will say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. They, they won't say, oh, I'm done with that, you know. Or they won't say, oh, I, I remain you know, an active alcoholic, but I've been declared non-alcoholic. No, no, they say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Okay, I hope you see the analogy. I think it's a very close analogy with sin. God's grace required to deal with sin. Absolutely. We're not Pelagians, we're not semi-Pelagians. We don't think we can save ourselves by an act of the will because the will is the problem, right? So we don't will ourselves out of a bad will. So you've got to allow grace to break through. Grace breaks through. Now what does God want? What does Christ want? He invites our cooperation with grace. Sacraments, the Mass, the Eucharist, the saints, the life of the church. All of this designed to keep me on this path right? that I've, I've uh, entered into. But what remains, and I think here you see the real relevance to the issue we're talking about today. What remains, Trent said to us, the fomes peccati, the tinder of sin. I'm a recovering sinner, and so are you. We're not ex-sinners. That'll be heaven. Please, God. Please, God. Someday in heaven I can say, I'm an ex-sinner. I'm, I'm saved. I'm not just declared righteous, even though I'm, I'm totally a sinner underneath that veneer. No, the Catholic position is, I'm a recovering sinner, cooperating with God's grace in such a way that I'm becoming righteous. It might be a way to, to state the, the issue. You know, I, I've, I've heard this question from, from Protestants here. Are you saved? Are you saved? And the Catholic answer is, the Lord and I are working on it, you know? I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm saved. In heaven, please God, I can say that. In heaven, please God, I can say, yeah, I'm saved. Um, I'm becoming justified through a cooperation with God's grace. All the time realizing that the fomes peccati, the, the tinder of sin, is in me. That's why it's a good Catholic prayer, Brandon, you know, to avoid, Lord, help me avoid the near occasion of sin. That's a good prayer. Because let's say you're an alcoholic. And, and you're doing good. You're a recovering alcoholic. You're seeing your sponsor. You're going to meetings. But you know, man, if, if I start hanging around bars with my, my friends, this is not going to go well. That's going to that's gonna light up in me again, the, the fomes peccati. So we recovering sinners pray, Lord, help me avoid the near occasion of sin because I know I can fall back into it easily. 
I think from a Catholic perspective, it's the best way to understand even someone like a Jean Vanier, who was in some ways a good man. I mean, I think it's, it would be wrong to deny that. At the same time, he's someone who, who fell. I, I mean, who, um, in whom the Fomes Peccati were, were illumined. They, they, he, he fell from, from this graced relationship. I mean, so those are both true. And to my mind, the Catholic theological anthropology of grace, cooperation, fomes peccati, is the best way to understand these things. It neither exculpates someone, doesn't say, oh no, he really wasn't guilty, nor does it, is it, we fall in the other extreme of saying, well, he was just nothing but depraved. I think that helps us to see the various dimensions of this complex thing. Right, so we Catholics need to participate in the life of the church. Right, and it, it's so important just to get past this kind of adolescent hang-up, you know, that, oh, the church is just laying a guilt trip on me, or the church is being oppressive, and so on. No, no, this is, you know, Paul VI said the church is an expert in humanity. I've always loved that description, uh, based on 2,000 years of experience with human beings and knowing what goes wrong and how to set us right, etc. And it's, it's like someone skilled in the 12-step process that says, look, I, maybe I can't entirely explain it, but... Getting a sponsor, seeing him and going to meetings, it works. It keeps you on the beam. So if you say, oh, look, I don't lay guilt trips on me, you know, all right, but good luck then with the program. So when the church says, for example, it's a mortal sin to miss mass, oh, how dare you impose your, your, your laws on me? No, it's just spiritual common sense. If you got the Fomes Peccati in you, and every one of us does, and even though we've been invaded by the grace of Christ, we've cooperated with it, we're always in danger. We are always in danger of falling into sin. What do you need? You need the disciplines and practices of the church to stay on beam. And if you you eschew all that, yeah, you're in mortal danger. And I'm not just talking about the ultimate you know, danger of, 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 of you know, hell and so on. I'm talking about even now. Even now you're putting yourself in danger spiritually if you don't perform these these various practices. It's not the church being just arbitrarily difficult or imposing itself. It's spiritual common sense. Bishop, it reminds me of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian exile, who had that famous quote about the line Mm -hmm. between good and evil cutting through the heart of every person. That comes to mind when I think of the Jean Vanier situation. Yeah, I've always loved that line because I think the... The intro to it is something like it runs not just through institutions and so on. And we th- oh, you know, that country is, is corrupt or that institution. It runs right through every human heart. And mind you, every human heart, he said. Not the heart of just, you know, wicked people, but even the greatest saints. And I would make sense of that in terms of the Catholic anthropology I was laying out. Is that, yes, we're, we're being justified through the grace of Christ and our cooperation, but at the same time, the Fomes Peccati remained in every one of us. In Mother Teresa, sure, and she'd be the first one to admit it. Uh, So right, that line between good and evil is through every single human heart. Seeing that is key to understanding this, uh, this issue. I think one thing that shocked a lot of people with the Jean Vanier episode is that you now have a lay person who used religion to manipulate and abuse people. You know, the past decade, we've heard story after story of, of priests doing this, of bishops doing this, of other church leaders, but, but now you have a layperson. It, it, it confirms that even lay people can use 
religion in order to mask over nefarious things, that, that even through this apparent good, evil can be still lurking underneath. Of course, and all of us sinners, you know, lay or clerical. Yeah, I like your point too, Brandon. Um, I, I think what I found most disquieting about the revelations about Jean Vanier is what you said there, how it seemed as though he used religion and spirituality and spiritual direction um, to manipulate and abuse people. The Romans had that phrase I've always loved, corruptio optimi pessima. The corruption of the best is the worst. And so when you, you use religion itself as a way of corrupting people, there's something particularly nefarious about it. But yeah, to your point, I, last time I checked, as our friend Chesterton said, we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick, right? Every one of us is, uh, is a sinner affected by the fomes peccati. We're at best recovering sinners who need um, the saving intervention of the church to keep us online. Whenever scandals like this erupt, um, a lot of Catholics, especially those who are maybe a little bit naive about church history, position it as the great apocalyptic scandal. You know, you saw this a lot after the Theodore McCarrick revelations came to light, that this is the worst scandal the darkest period in the church. We've reached the apex of you know, sin and scandal in the church. How would you position all of this vis-a-vis church history? You know, is, is this typical, the, scan, the scan, similar type, similar level scandals, have they arisen in the past? Or are, are we kind of seeing something far more new and intense? We don't that my little book, uh, Letter to a Suffering Church, I've got a chapter called, We've Been Here Before. And that was my argument in that short chapter, just to say, from the time of Paul, I mean, Paul's dealing with corruptions in the life of the church. Paul, who knew we hold the treasure of Christ in earthen vessels, that's to say very fragile vessels. Now come right up through church history, I could rehearse all the various examples of deep corruption, even on the part of some of the top leaders of the church. Um, So in a way, I'd say no, we're not dealing with something that's utterly unique. Terrible, yeah. Will it be part of the litany of of abuses over church history when people um, uh, recite them? Probably, justifiably so. They'll say the sex abuse scandals of of the late 20th, early 21st century. Yeah, probably. Okay, okay. And I don't mean to denigrate it. I'm not saying that for a minute, but we have been here before. And again, our anthropology should lead us in a way to expect it. Um, Do people pretty regularly fall off the wagon, even those who are in 12-step programs? Yeah, happens all the time. Um, Tragic? Sure. Um, Should we be blasé about it? No, but but accept the, the facticity of it. And I think that's true in the life of the church, too. Bishop, let's talk about one of the more provocative figures in church history, the 15th century Dominican friar Savonarola, who's probably best known for his aggressive response to religious scandal. Uh, Who was Savonarola? How did he respond to scandal, and was his response effective? As you say, a 15th century Dominican friar, interesting figure, a complex figure. There is something even of a Savonarola revival going on now, people uncovering his spirituality. Uh, someone who deeply influenced the young Michelangelo, and Michelangelo remained all his life long affected by him. Fiery, we call him reformed preacher, who wanted to um, change the city of Florence where he was from. He saw it as a place of great corruption, of um, self-indulgence and vanity, 
and he wanted to famously, uh, in a bonfire of the vanities, consume all of that. He comes to power politically, which in itself is a fascinating story, and he establishes a kind of theocracy uh, in Florence. Maybe not entirely unlike uh, Calvin's Geneva, in the sense of a religious figure wanting to establish a political order. Savonarola's was fiercely puritanical, to the point of uh, exciting in the people a counter-reaction, so that the very Medicis whom Savonarola expelled were eventually invited back in by the people. And Savonarola, who created these bonfires of the vanities, was himself consumed by one. So he's hanged in the public place and his body burned. Um, what's the lesson there? <laughs> Something like puritanical overreactions to these things are rarely uh, uh, called for. They're, they're rarely uh, advisable. Um, because those who want, in a kind of Jacobin spirit, and you know, when I say that, I, I mean the period after the French Revolution, the, the Jacobin, where the, this intensely anti-royalist, intensely pro-revolutionary crowd, led by uh, Robespierre, famously, who incited the, the terror, right, the, the terror after the revolution, those awful years, early 1790s, when people by the thousands were sent to the guillotines. The guilty, the innocent, the, the, the guilty, the semi-guilty, the innocent, the, the semi-innocent, everybody, sweep them all to the guillotine. And that, of course, excited a counter-reaction, and that Robespierre, they were a bit like Savonarola, was himself uh, guillotined. The, the point is, that kind of reaction, a sort of hyper-puritanical, a sort of revolutionary, a sweep everybody away, everyone's guilty, uh, I think that's not called for in the life of the church. Um, but rather a rededication to the evangelical basics, I would say, during times of crisis and scandal. Now look at Francis, at Dominic, at Benedict, of Ignatius, all the great heroes. It was a return to evangelical basics that led to a proper reform of the church. Not using the violent weapons of the world, that will probably consume those who use them. That's the lesson of Robespierre and Savonarola and many others. But I would say use the weapons of the Spirit, is return with confidence to the evangelical basics. And that's where the renewal of the church will come from. I'd like to close with this question. I feel like I just asked this question of you maybe six, 12 months ago after the McCarrick situation, but Catholics in the pew who feel tired and demoralized after this pattern of sin and scandal and abuse, what pastoral guidance would you offer them? What would you say to, to Catholics in the pew? I'd say stay and fight, as I did in, in my little book. I'd also say uh, be a saint. So the, the call of the church is always to radical holiness. It happens through grace. It happens through our cooperation with grace, even as we remain recovering sinners. Okay, all that's true. All right, stay with the church. Stay with its great disciplines and practices. Strive to be a saint. The church will always be uh, renewed by its saints, not by resorting to uh, the, the strategies and weapons of the world, but by recovering the great evangelical basics and by living the Christian life as radically as you can, even in your own small space. You know, that's a lesson, Brandon, from go back to 1989 and those, that revolutionary year in Europe when uh, the nonviolent revolutions in Czechoslovakia and in, in Poland and eventually in Russia took place. Someone like Václav Havel, you know, had that insight of, living in the truth, even in your small space, 
creates a bigger space for the truth and others can enter it, which makes the space bigger and then more can enter it. So be a saint, be a saint. Now, we'll be fully saints only in heaven. That's true. We all, we all have the fomes peccati. Stay with the church, band together, uh, resolve to be as holy as, as you can. That's where the renewal is going to come from. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today we have a question from Rich. He's in your own Archdiocese of Los Angeles Bishop, and he, he's asking how to take the next step when it comes to being formed for evangelization and apologetics. Here's his question. Okay. Bishop Barron, you legend. You get me so fired up about Catholicism, and I can't thank you enough for all the hard work you do. My question is this. On top of the practical evangelization that we can do in our everyday lives, what are some of the ways in which energetic young people who are passionate about the faith and apologetics can do to take this evangelization to the next level? Thank you, and God bless. Well, appreciate that. Uh, legend, no. Recovering sinner. Okay, I'll claim that title. Um, thanks for your question. You know, I've talked a lot about, um, especially young people, who have the new media in their fingers and in their blood. You grew up with it. You know it. Use it. But use it only when you're informed very deeply by the Catholic intellectual tradition. So study, pray, enter into that tradition, learn it, and then use all of that um, through the social media. Uh, that's one piece of advice. Another one, join the Word on Fire Institute. You know, so we're starting this thing. It's already well underway. Lots of people involved in it. Lay people who are... Uh, training to become evangelizers themselves. And everything we're offering in the Institute is designed to do that, to shape you as an evangelizer. Join the Institute, and then it connects you to all kinds of other people around the world doing the same thing. So that would be my practical advice, join uh, the Institute. But, um, you know, use the new media. You got it in your blood and your fingers, so use it. Well, great question, Rich. Thanks so much for sending that in. If you'd like to ask Bishop Barron a question, visit askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question there on any device. Before we go, I want to tell you about our newest book. We just released it here at Word on Fire. It's titled Centered, The Spirituality of Word on Fire. And it's a beautiful hardcover book that collects excerpts from many of Bishop Barron's writings arranged around different themes that really bring you into the heart of the Word on Fire spiritual life. Everything from God to Christ to the church to prayer. So if you're looking for a beautiful meditative book to surround yourself with the ethos of Word on Fire, you want this book centered to the spirituality of Word on Fire. Now here's the thing, if you want a copy, we're giving out free copies to anyone who joins the Word on Fire Institute. So maybe Rich will get one here in the next couple weeks after he signs up. You can learn more by going to wordonfire.institute, join the Institute. We'll send you a free copy of this new book, Centered. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.